you actually made a investment stake into Liverpool FC. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. So share more about that. Like that's Liverpool is one of my is my favorite team in the EPL. So talk to us about buying a piece of Liverpool. Like this is huge. Man, I think you know. To be honest with you, although it is very, I'm very grateful one to be mm-hmm. become the first black man. But you know, anything when you become the first at something, one comes with a lot of pressure, right? Mm-hmm. And number two, although I'm very grateful to raise um, that million seventy. I think it was some also some type of shame and guilt that came with it as well mm. because it's like wow we're talking about a million dollars right and for yeah. that to make history as a black man to me once again i'm very grateful for the opportunity but again that's just to show you how much more work that we have to do in this space when it comes to raising capital because for us to celebrate you know the first black man to raise over a million dollars when there's founders once again with nothing that are raising a lot more than that i have better access to capital podcast guest man the next guy that we have up is Siraj Gupta Siraj is a VC I think he's one of the only, is it the only VC we've had on yep. I think yeah he's the only VC we've had on to date we want to get more shout out to Arlen Hamilton we want to get Arlen on the podcast Siraj is a great character man he breaks down a lot of the wins and losses he's had over time and really gives us gems when it comes to um, VC journeys. You know, what should we say when approaching a VC and um, what not to do? If you haven't already, make sure you go check out Siraj's episode. That was a great one. Shout out to Siraj. Um, listen, Siraj, buddy, I know you want to buy the Raptors and you're in uh, YouTube, but I'm beating you to it. I said it right here. I can get you guys in the deal when we buy the Raptors in 2047. And uh, we're going to win a championship. We're going to bring that ring back. <laughs> back to the city, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't kill me, man. Let's get into this, Raj. Forming at the top of their game. It's just unbelievable to see. I love it, man. I love it. Yeah, for me, I would say, for me, it's probably Messi and, and LeBron, realistically. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually, I'm a huge PSG fan. I lived in Paris in 2010 when PSG was just awful like they're barely escaping relegation mm-hmm. so it feels like victory and uh vindication yeah <laughs> they're so powerhouse they now a good team. insane insane man it's, it's wicked i love it <laughs> most definitely but yeah listen guys thank you so much for having me and and for for offering for your for your 100th episode that i'm really honored that you guys thought of me i'm really happy to, to speak with you again Man, Siraj, you're welcome, man. It's a pleasure to have you. Honestly, um, we, we couldn't do it without you. We thought you were one of um our top guests. A lot of our yeah. of our um, fans messaged us saying, yo, we love that episode. Yeah. So, you know, we thought, hey, we got to have you back. And it's good to always just chop it up and see how you're doing, man. Yeah. So, sure, for sure. Yeah, you absolutely got I a lot of plays. It. Got a lot of plays. And I think one thing that stood out was we hadn't done a VC episode before. So I think it's such a complicated topic, and I think you offered a lot of great insight into that world, and you offered it from like a very human side. You know, when you think about VC, it's like very a lot of jargon. There's a lot of whatever, but you did a really good job of breaking it down in a very simplistic way where then like the normal person can understand. 
Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you for the feedback. I, I really appreciate it. And it was, out of all the interviews I've done, that was definitely one of the most fun ones. Like, <laughs> I always love talking to you guys. So oh, I'm excited to, to chat with you again. Exactly. I, know, I know I mentioned this last time, but I love the pictures you have up behind you. They're so gangster. Oh, them. you should see the others. I have another one. Um, there's one. I know you're, I got to show you this of like what I framed. Uh, hold on. Give me a sec. I know you're going to love this. I know you're going to love this. Bet, bet, bet. So, Sarajo, what's new with you um, in life? What, what I see you, you were talking to me and you talked told, told me, yeah, pardon me. You told me about uh, TIFF. Yeah. Right? So, how's TIFF going for you? Good, man. Good. It's been nice. So, today is the, uh, the third day of the festival. Uh, it's the first time since 2019 we've had any degree of anything in person. Um, mm-hmm. So, that part has just been, it's nice to see the energy in the city again. Hold on. I want to I wanna see what Owen's about to show me here. Yes, sir. I love it. Yo, that's sick. Yeah. yeah. So this that is, is wicked. This is the morning after the championship. I remember. Yeah. I remember. So that's I, amazing. Well, I mean, I'm gonna do this. Not really. Whatever. You guys get to see it this way. So I got a, a signed Bosch jersey here. Wow. Okay. Uh, I got a sign. I'm gonna skip that one on purpose. I got a signed. Jeez. Kawhi signed that. Yeah. Yeah. And in the middle, that's a piece of the net when we won the championship from Scotiabank Arena. Wow. How do you get access to to like to first get them to sign it and a piece of the net? That is, uh, you know what, man. So the piece of the net I actually purchased. Uh, it was it wasn't actually too much money. It was the uh, home opener the the day after, like the next season when we raised the banner. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think they had yeah like two hundred fifty of these they were selling or something like that. Um, so I'm like I like this is perfect for my place. Um, and then the Bosch jersey. It's a funny story actually. So Navasia, he's like a family friend of mine. And when I was younger, uh, when I was like you know, 10, 11. Yeah. He would take me to games all the time. Yeah. And I remember there was one game we were sitting courtside and he knew how much I loved Chris Bosch. Um, and so like, I mean, he knows all the players, all the players love him. And so the next time I saw him, he used to, he used to arrange cars for the players whenever they needed mm-hmm. it. So literally, I think the next time uh, Chris had somewhere to go, now uncle actually showed up with a car and had a Bosch jersey. And he's like, hey, like my nephew really loves you. Like, do you mind signing this? And Bosch was like, yeah, sure. Signs it. And the next time I see Navalko, he's like, here you go. And I was like, how did you <laughs> do this? He's so casual about it. Um, and the jersey was, uh, we do some charity work with MLSC Launchpad. Yeah. So they, they gave uh, signed jerseys to Ritu and I for our, for some of our work. We we helped them raise some money during the finals last or two years ago. Man, Kawhi. Kawhi, 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 man. Do you what? think he made the mistake by, by leaving? Yes. He, okay. Yeah, I... Maybe not a mistake for him personally because he wanted to be home. He wanted to be in warm weather, you know, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So from a lifestyle perspective, that was a personal choice. From the perspective of he wanted to outperform and try to continue his sustained performance, the cast he was joining in the Clippers were worse than the cast he left in, in Toronto, right? Yeah. I mean, like the next year we made second round. We were a couple points away from making the third round of the playoffs. Uh, we had a we had a really good team and like the the Clippers were good but they're clearly not not as good as we are so they uh, like there's a good chance we could have maybe not run it back last year the Lakers are pretty good um, but if we had the same cast in 2021 when it was Bucks Suns mm-hmm. I think uh, the 2019 Raptors would have been the best team and it's not that far I would say the Bucks like copied us this year like when it, when I look at the 100%. team the way they played the way they the, the the way they actually let Giannis play and they defended the wings, it was so Raptor esque. I was like, wow, this is yeah. a clone of the Raptors. Even the way they they ran their offense, I was like, this is with the shooters and let oh. Giannis cook. I was like, they they copied the formula of winning and how they have they length. I was just like, they saw the blueprint and they decided to copy it because to do oh, it with just one star, the Raptors exposed it in like this decade of how you can win a championship without 
three stars, and we did exactly. it first. But um, John Horst from G- the GM of the Bucks did just okay. We gotta copy what like the Raps and Uji did, and like this this it is worked. the result. It worked. Totally, man. No, I totally agree, and it's really funny because they we use that blueprint to beat them, even though they had a two zero series lead. Yeah. And then two years later, they use it to win a title when we weren't there, which is just. It's just funny how things work, right? Like we were the buck killer for so long mm-hmm. and the year we don't make playoffs, they win a title. LeBron was the Raptor killer for so long. The year he doesn't make playoffs, we win the title. It's yeah. just, it's really funny. That team moves out of the way and suddenly people can outperform. Man, speaking about sports uh, and, and going into like cashing up with you, you know, one thing that I saw recently is that you actually made a investment stake into Liverpool FC. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. So share more about that. Like that's Liverpool is one of my is my favorite team in the EPL. So talk to us about buying a piece of Liverpool. Like this is huge. Amazing, amazing. I'm glad you asked. There, there's limited amounts I'm able to talk about on this deal because a lot of okay. it is confidential. But we were able to share that we purchased stake in Fenway Sports Group. They own the Red Sox. They own Liverpool. Um, honestly, they're one of the premier sports groups that are out there. Um, you know, obviously, as a Toronto fan, it was very strange to be purchasing yeah. a stake in a, a non Blue Jay team. Um, and but honestly, it's it's a dream come true for us, right? To have exposure into into sports franchises. Sports franchises are in a funny place right now because a lot of them are very fairly valued. A lot of them are undervalued, but a lot of them are getting to a point where, you know, the valuations go a little bit crazy. Mm -hmm. But this really interesting phenomenon kind of happens when you have minority ownership with sports teams in that often, and this is going to change, but right now we're in a place where people can often negotiate a minority stake at a discount to what the, what the whole team is worth. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is when a team decides to sell the entire team, uh, like think about it, right? We, we live in Toronto. Uh, in our lifetime of living in Toronto, we haven't really seen the Raptors be for sale. Like maybe, maybe it happened once when Rogers and Bell purchased them mm-hmm. and it's probably going to be a while before it happens again. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a exceedingly rich billionaire that lives in any given team, you probably only have two, maybe three opportunities maximum to buy the entirety of your favorite sports team, mm-hmm. right? When they're selling the entire thing, which means that you'll probably pull a Steve Ballmer and pay a crazy amount for them. Like he did with the Clippers. So there's this interesting strategy you can do in sports right now where you can buy minority stakes in small teams that look like there's going to be a control sale soon and then bank on someone wanting to pay a massive premium yeah. because they just want to own the team, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Red Sox looks like, and for kind of Fenway Sports Group, it looks like there's a lot of potential for either maybe an IPO one day, maybe, you know, a big exit. Um, I, you know, this is hearsay, but I think that was part of the calculus as to why LeBron also decided to purchase a stake in the mm-hmm. team. Mm-hmm. Um, they're expensive, but they are, they have a lot of potential and they have a very, very strong brand. Um, and Liverpool specifically, like historic team, right? One of, if you're going to pick a few EPL teams to buy, they're one of what, five, maybe yeah. <laughs> if you want the exposure to, maybe six now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, like most lies, one of the, the greatest players on earth. I love that their best player is from the, like, is from Africa and not from Europe, not from South America. Like I love that he's an Egyptian player. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Everything about them is just, uh, is really intriguing. So we're, we're really excited about that investment. What gave you insight into that deal, right? Like I, yeah. I know you can't speak about the details of it, but yeah. exposure to deals, that's something yeah. not a lot of people have the luxury to, but how did that exposure to that deal come about? Yeah, great question. So we're actually working with a few uh, big partners. Um, one of them is called Arctos, mm-hmm. and they're a, a basically a big sports fund manager. So what mm-hmm. they do is they look to 
uh, sort of get exposure to a bunch of different teams, uh, and they are negotiating with leagues to allow them to do that. So they see a really phenomenal amount of deal flow. Um, they have an unbelievable board, an unbelievable investment committee, and we're invested with Arctos. So through them, we're able to get a lot of exposure and a lot of deal flow into different teams. Uh, because, yeah, naturally, I mean, like, if for us to go and knock on the doors of Fenway Park and say <laughs> we want to buy a stake in the in the Red Sox, it would be a lot harder. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a little bit more of an ability potentially to do that for teams we're more connected to, like the ones in Toronto, um, but other teams like, you know, the local business people that uh, sponsor the team, all that kind of thing, they have more insight. Uh, so that was how we were able to get exposure. Um, and honestly, I mean, my, my sister and I always joke, one of the reasons we launched Rogue is one day we want to own the Raptors. Like, that's, we joke, but that's, you know, one of the reasons we launched Rogue. Um, and I always say, whenever we are setting our benchmark kind of return rate, mm -hmm. I always say it needs to be, we need to be growing faster than Toronto Raptors, because mm -hmm. if we're not, we will not be able to catch up to a point where we can buy them. So I love that's that our benchmark dream. in any given year. I love that dream. I, that's also a dream of mine as well, too. Like, to, you know, if you can't make the league, like, the next thing you can do is, like, be an owner so you can lift the trophy with the team, right? Totally, I think every totally. every entrepreneur who is an athlete of some sort wants to, like, still be part of athletics, and ownership is the gateway there. So you got to hustle harder, right, to, to be able yeah, to, like, totally. get that ring, kiss it, and look at it as, like, yeah, I'm a champ, right? So, 100%, man. Yeah, 100%. Man. I totally agree. So we're excited, and the, and the Raptors will definitely be in our sights one day. One day, one man. Day. One day. Awesome, man. So what's one of the things you're you're working on? You know, you, we've been gone for almost like a year now, so walk us through some of the things you've been working on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, honestly, it's been uh, it's been an encouraging year. I think things are, are finally starting to improve. Um, as you guys likely remember, last time we spoke, uh, I was kind of, um, you know, it was all hands on deck all of the summer of 2020 for the family business in, on the real estate side. Uh, I've been kind of spending more and more time on, on rogue deals, which has been really nice. Uh, we're very lucky that the companies we've invested in have just absolutely rock star ownership and management. Uh, so the companies performed very well, despite the disruption that was the pandemic. So many of them are, are raising further rounds now, which is great. So some of our companies that were, you know, seed and series A when we first invested mm -hmm. are now raising, you know, series C, series D, they've grown like crazy. Um, so a lot of that has been actually keeping us busy. A few of our mm -hmm. companies are, are raising funding right now. Um, some of them, we've been able to bring them, you know, new investors on board, bring them new customers, new partnerships, things like that. So it's been quite a lot of fun. It, it's been nice to see the journey go from, you know, the very beginning, evaluating the company, trying mm -hmm. to understand what they're doing, trying to understand their potential, mm -hmm. and then seeing that multi-year journey where they yeah. realize their potential and then kind of the value we can bring where we see partners we can introduce them to and things like that. Um, so that part is really cool. I mean, like just today, I, I was having lunch with a, a good friend of mine from university uh, and he works in renewable energy. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a portfolio company that's in renewable energy and they've now grown to a point where it would make sense for them to speak. Um, and that part is really awesome because I've been friends with the guy for, you know, 10 years or something more. Yeah. Uh, but now it's, we're kind of perfectly positioned where this company can speak to them. So I texted the CEO. I'm like, okay, I have someone you need to talk to. This is going to be awesome for you. Um, yeah, so it, it's kind of nice to see the companies grow and see the value we can bring to them as they do. Speaking of growth, right, you've grown as a business, but let's focus on you. Like, what's the elements of growth you've you've gone as a, as a VC over the past year that you can say, you know what, back then I was doing this, but, you know, I can see my growth in one year. How has that been like for you and your sister? I know you can't speak for her, but as a team and for personal as well. Yeah, yeah, Owen, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's a mixture of different things. I think one thing I can definitely appreciate is that when we, when we so actually, uh, funny enough, Rogue's four-year anniversary was a few days ago, September 5th congrats. was the day we incorporated. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, and one thing we, Ritu and I were both discussing is that, you know, 
we're, we're again, we're very lucky and we're very blessed that four years into it, we've been able to see a, a very drastic difference in, in deal flow. I mean, like you guys mentioned, right? Uh, when I launched Rogue, there was no chance we would have had a had a crack at Fenway, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at Fenway Sports Group, it just it wouldn't have happened. So we're very blessed that now we've hit a point where we're seeing really amazing deal flow. We're seeing kind of some of the top tier deal flow in the world, mm-hmm. um, and also the companies that we invested in that were smaller, Canadian, what have you. We're kind of trying to help them grow to a point where they can be in that in that kind of upper echelon as well. Yeah. So in terms of growth as a VC, I would definitely say that that's one of the things that we feel very lucky about that the, we're now kind of privileged to be sharing the stage, sharing the conversation, sharing cap tables mm-hmm. with some of the most premier investors in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, we're, we're not necessarily writing the, the, the gigantic checks that, you know, NEA and Andreessen and these guys are writing. Um, but being able to, to see the same deals is really amazing. And it's nice to see kind of how that changed every year, right? The first year was very, very different. Second year, a little better. Third year, better, but then COVID hit. And now this is kind of the year where all the, the pandemic delayed deals are hitting the market. Mm-hmm. And we have the luxury, I think, of choosing between some of the better ones. Nice, man. Nice. And like yeah. the, the deal flow now, when you look ahead into 2022, uh, like what are some like your top three priorities that you're looking to, you know, to, to get done? Uh, yeah, great question. So in terms of sector, in terms of just kind of sector, focus, sector focus, like what's that focus now? Like when you look at 2022, like now that the pandemic is, is, you know, everyone's getting vaccinated, things are going back to normal. Like what's that looking yeah. like for you this coming year that we're, you know, we got like yeah, maybe yeah, four months left. Question. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. So, you know, Owen, oh, Alex, one thing that's so interesting is that generally the markets tend to be a little bit delayed when they are looking at industry, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the world should have been looking at healthcare investment, biotech investment for decades, right? And they never did to the degree they should have. Uh, and now it kind of overcorrected, right? People yeah. are looking a lot at healthcare and they should, but valuations have sort of overcorrected. So, you know, an average investor can naturally look at COVID and say, you know what, biotech, it's gotta make a ton of sense to invest in. Uh, but, you know, the companies can fundamentally do really well, but if you're buying at the wrong valuation, it doesn't really matter, mm-hmm. right? And we see that all the time, right? Like the financial crisis happened and sort of those financial innovation and, and companies looking at consumer finance and like, uh, you know, mortgage-backed security purchases, people had overdone it for years and then that sort of overcorrected. So one thing we always sort of look at is not just what kind of what's hot now, but any line of sight we can have into what's going to look very good in the future, right? Um, A lot of people have made a lot of money on crypto companies, for example, uh, and on these different currencies. It's something for us that we're not necessarily touching, not because I don't fundamentally believe in the technology, but just because you know, you can be right about the thesis and completely wrong on the valuation. Mm-hmm. And the way I kind of look at that, and we chatted about this last time as well, is that I kind of liken blockchain and crypto to the internet in 1997, right? Yeah. We could have sat there in 97 and said, the internet's going to be huge, and we would have been right. And if we invested in internet companies, we probably would have gotten absolutely crushed, right? Because mm-hmm. if you didn't pick Amazon or Google, you would have picked like Worldcom or Enron or any, well, not Enron, but any of these other companies that, that went bust back then. And I think that people focus too much on the fact that the thesis of cryptocurrency being huge is, is correct, but it doesn't necessarily mean that gives you the ability to, to choose the winners, right? So mm-hmm. that's kind of the first thing is we're cautious about where we're looking and very cautious about the industries that are, that are currently very hot because that can change very quickly. That's the first thing. The second thing, and this is less sector specific and more just general deal flow specific, is that valuations have continued to increase over and over again. And yeah. uh, you know, when we first launched Rogue, five to 10 times revenue was, was a, a barometer for a lot of you know, recurring revenue companies, and that was expensive. And that has since turned into 10 times being cheap now. Like if we see a deal at 10 times revenue and it's recurring and it's a strong business, 
that often means the deal's gonna be oversubscribed like crazy. Yeah. And more often than not, we're seeing deals that are 20, 40, 50 times revenue, right? Mm -hmm. And it's funny, it was only a few months ago that after seeing so many deals we passed on because they were so expensive, I remember hitting a point of, okay, do I need to reevaluate my own priorities and my own valuation model? Uh, because are we missing too many deals or should we stay disciplined and wait for a good deal? And thankfully we got a couple of good deals that came. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. This is possible. It's just, it's just harder to find. So I think that's going to be a big focus for us going forward. Uh, looking at companies that are going to be doing very well and have everything going for them doesn't necessarily mean the investment, you know, could be, could be correct because you know, now we have the luxury of picking companies that I think will do very well, mm -hmm. but we also need to pick the companies that will do the best. Right? So if we invest in a company that's going to grow, and you know, return fifty percent in four or five years. Mm -hmm. That's a, you know a solid return, but you know we can probably beat that. So we, we need to be, I think, very careful with what we're looking at because things have gotten very expensive. So mm -hmm. that's kind of some of the things that we're we're looking at as we go into next year is being super selective on some of our deals. Mm, got you, mm, man. It's, it's so important to be selective when you're looking at the new deals that you're approaching. Yeah. Um, so. Working towards wrapping up, you know, what tips do you think entrepreneurs can take moving out of 2021, um, out of the pandemic world into, um, you know, this new, new, new normal yeah. <laughs> that we're about to approach? Um, yeah. Well, what advice would you have for, for those entrepreneurs that are approaching VCs in, in this, uh, you know, new, new normal? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I think there's several things entrepreneurs can do as we as we move forward and as we slowly progress out of the pandemic with some things sort of fundamentally change. Mm -hmm. uh, the first thing I would recommend, kind of similar to what we what we just talked about, is that you know a lot of companies did very well through the pandemic because of their offering, right? If you were offering a video conferencing software or if you were offering you know uh, antibacterial products for offices and things like that, you had like a massive increase in business mm -hmm. you know through 2021. So the first thing I would recommend is kind of don't bank so much on that being a huge factor going forward. Because as we progress out of the pandemic, you kind of need to look at what's next, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, during the pandemic, for example, everyone downtown Toronto all said like, downtown's done, you know, no one wants to live here. We need to go live at like Baby and Shepherd, <laughs> like <laughs> the suburbs, all that kind of thing. And a lot of people sold their condos downtown for like a record low at the point, at that point, and bought extremely for a record high. And I think it's just a matter of having, having a balanced perspective uh, as you go forward, right? And look at what's important now, but what's gonna be important three, four years from now, right? Um, if you're a, a teleconference software provider, be aware of the fact that currently we, we kind of peaked with teleconferencing, right? Like mm -hmm. it's likely to come down as people start working in the office again. Still very, still very important, but if you're looking at your offering, don't be banking on the fact of we're in a pandemic and everyone needs our software like us. Mm -hmm. Talk about, okay, as we go forward, people are gonna be back in the office. Here's how we're gonna supplement that and enhance the, the post-COVID new normal, like you guys mentioned. So that's the first piece of advice I'd give. Uh, the second piece, as always, focus on what you're passionate about, right? Like don't just ride a trend that you think is, is sexy, exciting, what have you. Uh, look at something that you really care about and look at something that really, really matters to you. Um, and the third thing, and this is gonna be increasingly important as companies continue to grow, uh, is just sort of managing the pandemic, right? Like most, most companies that didn't do well through the last couple of years, a lot of them, reasonably had COVID to blame, mm -hmm. a lot of them had, had kind of a backup, right? If you didn't do well during the last couple of years, you'd go, oh, well, it's COVID, right? Nobody did well. So being able to really tell a story about, you know, why you are where you are, where your competitors are, and how you're going to outperform going forward um, without, and, and keeping in mind everyone's saying the same thing. Everyone is saying, well, COVID caused X, Y, Z. So just know that that's not going to be something that makes you stand out. So really, really having a good story to tell uh, and also being aware of the fact that, you know, most VCs stopped their investments in March, 2020. And 
only really started them like a few months ago in serious capacity. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of excess deal flow that didn't get funded that you're now competing against. So you really need to make sure you can stand out and know your competition well in order to, to raise money right now. Speaking of hype, did you get into Doge at the time? It was like, no. you didn't get into Doge, <laughs> Definitely right? Definitely not. <laughs> He's like, hell no. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, like I said, I haven't touched any of the, the cryptocurrencies. I'm, I'm very much a fundamentalist with what I trade. Yeah. So can anybody listening, can you make a ton of money trading cryptocurrencies? Yes, it's possible for sure. It's also possible that you get completely cleaned out for reasons that are very, very visible to you, right? Uh, and that's always the concern, right? Like I think it was El Salvador that bought... $5 million worth of Bitcoin to start uh, transitioning some of their currency mm -hmm. and Bitcoin dropped by 15% the next day, which is not unheard of. Mm -hmm. And they had riots like all around the country, right? Because people just said like, we just lost 15% of, of our, the worth of this currency you bought us. Um, this isn't fair. And that's the thing people need to, to keep in mind is that these things aren't trading on fundamentals. They're purely trading on supply and demand, right? Mm -hmm. So if some guy on the street is willing to pay you you know, 10 bucks for this bottle of water doesn't mean this bottle of water is worth 10 bucks. It just means in that moment, someone was willing to pay that price for me. Mm -hmm. But as you get more exposure, you're going to kind of gravitate towards where supply and demand metrics should be. And right now it is very much just driven by you know, a lack of fundamental value. So mm -hmm. that's where I caution any investor because I know crypto, you know, it's very loud in the media right now. It's very accessible. Uh, it's very easy seemingly to make a lot of money. But right now, investing in those things is not that far off from gambling. So you just need to never invest any amount that you're not okay with going to zero and you wouldn't lose sleep over it. Because if that's the amount you're looking at, don't do it. Great advice, man. Big, big facts. Listen, man, so it's been a pleasure. Well, where can people find you? Uh, listen, a few different places. Uh, Rogue Insight Capital, that's our website. Companies, if you guys have anything uh, anything interesting, go over there. There's a contact us form. You can definitely reach out. Um, otherwise, Instagram, LinkedIn, like I, I'm always available. Um, right now, we're in an election in Canada, as you guys know. Uh, and I also have a political website called Politics Understood. I usually use it to sort of forecast what's going to happen with the election. Uh, and over the next week, I know this might be uh, dated by the time this comes out, but over the next week, uh, I'll be putting out a, a model predicting kind of who's going to win the, uh, our, be our next prime minister and also sort of yeah. summarizing some of the platform. So any political junkies or people that want to know what the hell's going on in Canada, it's uh, politicsunderstood.com. Let me check, yeah, check that out. Yeah, yeah, me too. That'll be linked below. Yeah, I've been following politics like since Trudeau just called up, you know, yeah. election out of nowhere. So... I've been looking for some 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 place with like a great objective, so I'm gonna check you out. I'm gonna check. Good, good. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna. So it's Saturday today. I'm hoping to have the article published Monday or Tuesday. Mm -hmm. um, I'll email you both when it's done, and it'll be up there. And my Sorry. article is effectively going to summarize kind of each party's platform. And everyone gets, you know, it, there's so much information. It gets so convoluted, right? And I know mm -hmm. even for me, you have to do a lot of research to figure out who resonates with your values. Mm -hmm. So my goal usually in these kind of campaigns is to summarize that for voters, so people can really understand what I'm voting for mm -hmm. um, because the, you know, the worst thing people can do is not vote. And the second worst thing is to vote being misinformed. So exactly. I'm trying to, trying to encourage people to vote and do a very, very basic amount of research. You know, it's like a five minute read that they can go in with, uh, with the right information. Facts. Amazing. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, the hustle is what you can control. control. So control your grind and control your life. This is our hundredth episode. I'm Alex. I'm Owen Osinde. I love it, guys. This is Suraj Gupta, and I really appreciate you guys having me. Congratulations. 100 episodes is no joke, and uh, looking forward to talking again at 200. All right. Let's go. All right, <laughs> y'all. Peace. All right, guys. Take care. Man, shout out to Suraj. That was a great episode. Suraj bought Liverpool, bro. No, he didn't buy it. He invested in Fenway Sports. Invested bro. in the company. Exactly. Yeah. That is, yeah.
And Liverpool's my favorite soccer club. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So he has a piece of he has a stake. So he's already in the race. He's already winning the race. Mm-hmm. Congrats, guys. Congrats, congrats, congrats. That's huge. Moving right along, we have one of our top entrepreneur podcast guests back on the show, Pierre Laguerre. You know what I'm saying? Shout out to Pierre. He has blown up since we last spoke to him. He was on The Pitch. He was on Afrotech. Um, he raised the highest amount of money you can raise on a public platform, mm-hmm. um, Republic. And he shares his journey on that. You know, there's an interesting phenomenon when you become a black man that's done something. For the, the first world. time. Yeah. So we really dive deep into that. So I want to make sure you guys pay attention to that as we dive into this episode. So enjoy. Anything you want to say about Pierre before we get into it? No, let's get into it. Boom, let's go. Just get straight into He's it. ready to rock. Awesome. <laughs> Awesome, awesome, awesome. Pierre, welcome back to the show. How you doing, man? Ah, uh, man, I'm doing exceptionally well, brother. I can't complain. I have every reason to complain. Well, guess what? But I'm not going to because nobody cares anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we yeah, right? So I just got to, we just got to keep our heads down and get it done. I hear you, man. Uh, actually, but man, when it comes to that, when it comes to complaining, you know, that's where I, I, I choose to go to therapy, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. to try and get that out, when I get my complaints out. Mm-hmm. And then I come back and I get to the actual thing, you know? Like, that's the only time I really feel like I can actually complain and have someone care is when I pay them to care. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, I would yeah. say there's absolutely nothing wrong with complaining, mm-hmm. right? It's when you complain and do nothing about the situation, then it's a problem. But if you're complaining, but you're saying, you know what, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to find a solution, Pretty much is no longer complaining. It's just venting about challenges that you have. And you just want to find somebody that can relate, that can understand the struggle, that can understand what you're going through. And at least we could be in a position to show some level of empathy of what you're going through. And I think all entrepreneurs deserve to have that. Mm-hmm. So, but once again, there's one thing about complaining and not doing anything about it. And the best way you can figure that out is you can see for yourself is, are you problem conscious or solution conscious? Whatever you spend most of the time on will tell you which one you're more conscious about. So. Once again, just to make it clear, there's nothing wrong with complaining about challenges as long as you kind of, you know, pushing through them and getting them done. We all need no, that. That's okay. 100%. I just, like, write that's down okay. my thoughts that I, like, I'm struggling with, and I just write everything down, tear up that piece of paper, and just dash it in the trash can. It's, like, the most therapeutic thing ever because you're throwing out everything you released in the garbage, and it's gone. I like that hat. Definitely. I like that. Because yeah. I, I do the same thing, but, you know, I do it with words. And just kind of tell out the universe, you know, whatever is good for me, welcome in. Whatever is not good for me, I excel them, let them out. 100%. They don't belong man. in it. 100%. That's a fact. So, Pierre, man, yo, you have had a hell of a run since we last chat, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, let, let's talk about it. One of the biggest things that we can talk about is becoming the first man to raise the most amount of money you can raise on Republic. Walk us through what happened from your perspective. Man, I think, you know, to be honest with you, although it is very, I'm very grateful, one, mm-hmm. to become the first black man. But, you know, anything when you become the first at something, one, comes with a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. right? And number two, although I'm very grateful to raise um, that million seventy, I think it was some also some type of shame and guilt that came with it as well, because it's like, wow, mm-hmm. we're talking about a million dollars, right? Yeah. And for that to make history as a black man, to me, once again, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. But again, that's just to show you how much more work that we have to do in this space when it comes to raising capital. Because for us to celebrate, 
you know, the first black man to raise over a million dollars when there's founders, once again, with nothing that are raising a lot more than that. I have better access to capital. And you kind of reflect on it and say, okay, yeah, I, I am grateful for being the first black man to raise that money. I'm grateful for even somebody that looked like me can actually achieve mm -hmm. it. But when you really, really look deep down into the details, you're like, wow, the things that we're all celebrating is like, things is like, we shouldn't have to really celebrate a first black man to raise a million dollars on a crowdfunding platform, right? Because what that tells the world at the same token is like, oh, yeah, black people do have the ability to build businesses as well. To me, I think that we're a little too advanced. Mm -hmm. In 2021, we're talking about the first black man to achieve anything. To me, I find it a little, it's a little uneasy to deal with. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I felt like, you know, that alone shouldn't be history. That should mm -hmm. be something just like it becomes second nature. You have a great business. We think that has a great potential return. We'll love to invest, you know, but we live in a world or we live in a society where we all understand the challenges that black founders go through to raise venture capital. Again, right, if you just even listen to what I'm saying right now, it kind of sounds like I'm complaining, <laughs> but it's not a complaint to where I'm saying, okay, hey, look, I'm just stuck into this yeah. problem. But for me, it's, okay, well, how do I, what, what's the solution that we need to do, you know, to make, um, you know, raising capital a lot more accessible to founders? You know, how do we educate, you know, our community to be more up on game about crowdfunding because again that's something that our community is not aware of you know investing alone is not something that our community is very aware of so if we can really really start creating better opportunities where we can educate and empower founders and people of color the the power of investing i think we can really start changing that narrative and it will go from pierre becoming the first black man to raise a million dollars to a bunch of million founders are raising a million dollars through crowdfunding mm -hmm. Through their own community so but it was a great experience at, at what point during the whole hoopla of you actually achieving the goal and then realizing damn like this should not be it because at one point you're like you know, you're jubilant about it but like how far along did you start feeling that this is not a good feeling to have absolutely i think you know around the same time last year in july that was um that's when um the news came out but I remember that was around the same time you know things was uh, the country was pretty much upside down yeah. with george floyd right mm -hmm. there was a lot of uh, racial unrest and i think <clears throat> that also kind of helped with the campaign and again it just felt like a lot of people really saw this as, as an opportunity because remember everybody felt like okay well we need to do more we need to do more and i think that drove a lot of people to see what we were doing to say, okay, well, hey, there's a minority founder right here really trying to build something. So in a sense, it kind of felt like, uh, I don't want to use that word, but it kind of felt like a lot of it may have been petty money, right? And then, uh... but you're also thinking about in the term of what George Floyd went through, what had to happen for the world to kind of really open up their eyes to say, okay, well, let's just do more. You understand? Uh, black men literally had to get killed in front of the whole world to see for people to be like, okay, well, what is it that I can do better? So I think if you take that entire time where we was going through this old racial unrest and, you know, you're trying to build a capital, um, I think, not just me, I think a lot of black men was feeling less than around that time. And it wasn't just necessarily around that time, but, you know, before that and continue on, a lot of black founders, a lot of black men or black women are feeling less than. So when you get a moment of where you just watch somebody that look like you, that could be an uncle, that could be a brother, right, get murdered in the street, and then now I turn around and everybody said, okay, well, let me help and help this founder. Although, again, I was very grateful for it, but did it have to, like, did we have to have that level of sacrifice of a black man being brutally murdered in the street for people to turn around and say, okay, well, how do we support Pierre, right? So a lot of it for me, it was like, okay, well, who was those supporters? Very grateful for them again. Okay, did they invest because they saw something great? 
in this company that can actually bring them a return? Or did they invest simply because they're like, oh man, yeah, black men is getting killed at alarming rate. Let me put some money in there just to help this black family. So just kind of like dealing with that, that emotional roller coaster of both, is yeah. yes, it was a good feeling, but at the same token, it had you really sitting down, head down, questioning myself, questioning my existence, mm-hmm. even questioning my own journey. Alex, this is what we spoke about a couple episodes ago with corporate ties with let's do more for, what's the diversity hiring? Let's do all these black yep. initiatives and... There's a couple we were like trying to get a part of. And then I think we reached back out to them months later and the energy was different. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Did, you, did you notice a crescendo in energy? Like for, for us, we had all types of brand deals that were coming out and you know, people reaching out to us from, you know, um, unicorn brands. Mm-hmm. And at first it was, yeah, we love what you're doing. And slowly but steadily it started to this fade as the you know the news cycle started to turn and i was like man what the heck is going on here was that was it like that for you absolutely absolutely i experienced that for sure you know and what i call it there was a lot of you know fun i was really selling a lot of lip um lip services around that time because they just felt like there was an opportunity for them for publicity right they want to kind of put their name out there oh yeah well this one we're doing more for minorities oh this one is doing more but reality when you really put them to the test Everybody was just, you know, it was just a moment to everybody to tap in and get some type of publicity around their fund or what they were mm-hmm. doing. But I know hundreds of founders that, you know, reach out to those funds and really didn't get anywhere. And it was just like, okay, now, you know, it's not hot anymore. It's not a hot topic anymore. Everybody like, you know, let's just go right back to regular business, you know? Yeah. So, Until another like, story drops. Absolutely. That's, that's, <laughs> all, that's all it was. But however, to those other funds, though, that was really, really stepping up, right? We want to definitely give them, you know, more power to mm-hmm. them. We want to say thank you to them for really stepping up to the plate and feel like, you know, it wasn't just a lip service. They really wanted to do more. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you look at investors like, you know, Hustle Fund, if you look at um, Arlen Hamilton, you understand, if you look like Republic, like all those funds, you know, they didn't just kind of sold a lip service. The thing about it is in the funds that didn't, that wasn't part of that lip service that they were selling, it was funds that was already going towards helping minorities anyway. So they was already doing the work. Mm-hmm. So when that, you know, George Floyd happened, it just kind of highlighted them mm-hmm. on a different level. But a lot of people just saw it as an opportunity to say, oh yeah, I'm doing more to help the black fund. But the people that really did more is the people that already was part of that mission. And when that time was right, they was able to really kind of gain from that exposure of showing what they were doing for minority founders. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shout out Arlen, man. Her story <clears throat> and her journey is, is awesome. And she has a dope podcast as well, yeah. My First Million. So oh, yeah. um, shout out to her. Oh, it is amazing. For most definitely. So I want to talk about uh, the pitch because you're also on that, you know, switching gears a bit. How yeah. was the experience on the pitch for you? Ah, man, the experience on the pitch was a great experience, right? Although it was somewhat, every time I go to a pitch competition, and this is if any founders listening here, they're probably thinking like, okay, this guy appears winning every pitch competition. <laughs> he probably, you know, 100% confident, like, you know, and I'm here to tell you, man, every time I'm in a pitch competition, I'm nervous as hell. My stomach is bubbling. You know, you're afraid of, like, you know, missing out on words. You know, you fu- um, you're afraid of kind of, like, you know, missing out certain points. But I think the more that I've learned to pitch from a standpoint of telling my story, right, the more I felt like pitching, like, where it's like, this is my journey, it just kind of felt natural, right? It didn't feel like, okay, well, let me say this so this investor can like me. Let me say it that way so an investor could buy in. So it was just much more like, okay, how can I be the most authentic, you know, peer and really tell a story? Not from uh, a standpoint of where we will be, 
in the future, but also what is it that led me to get into this business? Mm -hmm. You know, what challenge that I've seen myself. So I think the more I was really kind of in tune with that, the easier, you know, the pitch competition become because it wasn't like now I'm competing for money. It just kind of felt like, hey, look, here's my story. Mm -hmm. Here's what I've went through. And this is how I want to change trucking for, you know, and make it a better place. So I think that helped also with not only winning that pitch competition, but a lot of different pitch competition, being able to kind of be my true self, be authentic and really tell a problem like it is. Mm -hmm. And like now, like as you're evolving, like doing all these pitch competitions, how has the product grown from like this time last year as we're talking uh, from the team to like iterations to market traction? How's that looking like? Oh, man. So. That's a good question on that because when, um, through the pandemic, you know, we were able to actually 3x our revenue, right, for that year, which was great. But I think, you know, if you understood, um, if you wasn't moving uh, any essential goods, mm -hmm. you know, in transportation, you pretty much didn't have no business running, right? So a lot of trucking companies went out of business. So for us, we have to really think fast. Like, what is it that we need to do right now? One, to not run out of capital. Two, to make sure that we still have a business to be able to build around. So for us, what we did, we really paid attention to a lot of the data, right? We really paid attention to how many trucking companies was going out of business. We paid attention to how many drivers was giving us feedback on the companies that they was going to work for, you know, what was working for them and what wasn't working for them. So with that, we was able to actually learn a lot better than what we initially thought would go into the market product would look like. And then it just kind of allow us to create this new feature where, in a sense, we call ourselves now the Airbnb for trucks. So we, do not, we don't send drivers to trucking companies anymore. Now we kind of allow anyone kind of register their truck into our platform and treat it like an Airbnb where the drivers can actually book their own truck, book the freight, and have better um, control of their schedule. So that was one learning part that we got from uh, from the pandemic. And we kind of launched that feature, you know, this early 2019, um, 2021. This year we launched it. And even with that new feature, we already did, um, we already passed what we did in 2020 um, with that new feature. So yeah, so the, pretty much the number of customers have grown, uh, number of drivers have grown. The product pretty much is, we about another two months away mm -hmm. from getting our product to where drivers can be self-dispatched. Because right about now, I would say it's about an 80 and 20% um, tech, and the other 20% is still manually. Um, so we're about three months away from really launching um, the next version to where the drivers can actually have self-dispatch. Meaning where they can say, okay, well, I'm willing to work Monday through Thursday, and I want to make three grand. The system will actually tell a driver where he needs to pick up the truck, mm -hmm. what load he needs to move, what city and state he needs to go in to make that kind of money and be back home. So I think that really kind of allow us to really learn a lot. Number one, um, we actually did over one point, we probably about $1.7 million in revenue already for the year. And I think the amount of drivers and, and, and customers, that's continued to grow mm -hmm. to a point where it's like, okay, well, we're trying to figure out what do we do? Like, do we tell customers we can service them now or do we put them on a waiting list as we think in the growth part of the business is not just, again, just building tech and just assuming what works for the people. I think is you know, we want to continue learning, collecting data, understand what's working, what resonate with the drivers, what resonate with the shippers, and continue building to make sure that we put a product that, you know, 90% of the industry is going to use as opposed to only 10% of the industry. So from, from 2020 to now, we've seen some amazing traction. And now we're actually getting ourselves ready for early next year to do Series A. Mm. Yeah, that's huge, man. Like I was going to say, like, you know, the thing with tech, it's you learn from actually talking to people. And I think a lot of people were so feature driven. You think this feature is going to is going to kill. Like You think it's going to this is the next big thing. But you actually end up finding out by actually just having these moments of serendipity of conversations with drivers. Like, hey, I think this will work. And then it actually transforms your whole product and it becomes like a whole new thing. 
Absolutely. And we saw that firsthand because once again, we went to market with, you know, with this thesis that, hey, look, we're going to let the drivers pick and choose when they want to work, whom they want to work for. And in reality, we thought that was going to be the best thing, you know, since sliced bread for drivers until drivers start sending back feedback like, hey, man, you sent me with this company. This company don't know how to talk to me. This company don't know how to treat drivers. This company is not professional. So when we start collecting all that data and I think one of them that really, really, really stood out for us that allowed me to really make a decision fast was when a group of drivers really said, hey, we wanted to be part of fleeting, not sending us to another trucking company. And that message really resonated with us. And that's when we decided to say, okay, you know what? Instead of us sending our drivers to other companies, we're going to create a digital kind of carrier right inside the platform. And the people that have trucks, that are struggling with their trucks, that can't find drivers, instead of us sending their drivers, we say now, you can give us your truck. We create an ecosystem to where they have the insurance. They have everything that they need for their trucks. They register the truck into the platform. Once the truck is registered, that truck is now served as inventory. Mm -hmm. So let's say, oh, and you're on a platform as a driver, you can say, okay, well, there's a 2018 Freightliner and there's a 2019 Peterbilt available. I could book that truck whether I'm booking it for three days or I'm booking it for a week. You have the ability to book that truck and kind of create your own schedule. So mm -hmm. we create an ecosystem that allow everyone to win. The drivers have flexibility and better control of his schedule. The person that owned the truck that was already struggling, couldn't find a driver. Now that truck is being maximized all the time. And of course, by keep doing that, we build that capacity, which the shippers are always looking for that the industry cannot provide. So by us putting all these trucks under the platform, we aggregate the capacity and we give the shipper the full transparency to kind of see where their freight is at, yeah. to see what's going on, you know, to, to kind of pretty much stay up to date on the deliveries. And the drivers, they have that peace of mind of knowing that they no longer have to spend 30, 40 days on the road. They can say, okay, well, I'm only looking to work four days and make X, Y, and Z and be comfortable. And that really resonated with a lot of drivers. Man, that's really interesting. My, 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 the first thought that comes to me is, who takes the responsibility of insurance? Mm -hmm. So the responsibility of insurance is, the, is on the, a truck owner, right? So if okay. you own the truck, you're pretty much responsible for the insurance. But what we did, or as we understand insurance, is it's very hard to scale a trucking company when you run it on your own, especially if you really have zero experience in the logistics space, right? So insurance companies, they don't want you to grow from one truck to two trucks too fast. They'll drop you. Right. So it's very hard. So this is why 92 percent of this entire 800 billion dollar market are small trucking companies that own five trucks or less because of that insurance cost. It's prohibitive for them to actually scale their businesses. So by us really purchasing that umbrella insurance for them, although they're paying for it monthly, but we kind of got it under the company's name as umbrella insurance. So when somebody registered their truck based on the year, make and model of the truck and the worth of the truck, they'll tell you exactly how much they'll be responsible for paying the insurance monthly themselves. But the thing is, remember, they don't have to pay that insurance out of their pocket. Remember, they pay the insurance every time the truck run, we deduct the fee for the insurance course for the individual. So that kind of give them that full flexibility where they don't really have to worry about the insurance. And the best part about it is, now, if they want to go from one truck to say, hey, look, P, I want to own 15, 20 trucks, mm -hmm. our platform allowed them to do it without worrying about the insurance dropping them because they're growing too fast. So it gives them the peace of mind of scaling their businesses, not only that, but it also gives them the peace of mind of running a, a logistics company passively to where they don't have to deal with the day-to-day -day operation. They don't have to worry about hiring a driver. They don't have to worry about finding loads. They don't have to worry about negotiating contract. They don't worry about you know processing payment for the drivers. The platform really take care of all of that, and the truck owners just receive their passive income monthly. Unreal. Jeez. Jeez. How is that passive, though? You said passive income. How? So it's passive. So... So how it is, is that, okay, from the pandemic, right, there was about 
60,000 new entrants in, in, in trucking. So what was happening is a lot of people saw trucking as a viable option, you know, to build passive income mm -hmm. because they saw it through the pandemic. That was the only thing moving, right? Yeah. So everybody and their mother went to board a truck and trailer trying to get into the trucking business. But what they didn't know was that the challenge that been existing in trucking, which is finding good drivers and retaining drivers, it's a huge challenge that costs the industry billions of dollars annually. But these new entrants just didn't know that that's the challenge that they was going to run into. So you had people that purchased a truck, trailer, paying expensive insurance on the truck in a truck note, but the truck was sitting in their front yard because they didn't have no driver to put in that truck. So they was actually losing money on that asset, or some of them was on the risk of the trucks getting repo and kind of messing up their credit. So what we did by saying, okay, well, give us that truck, you put it into our platform, we manage everything from beginning to end as far as getting a driver. What this? What just happened? Oh man, I bet his battery died. So we just lost Pierre. So we're gonna take a quick break and come uh, back to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, we're back. Pierre's here with us. Let's get back into it. Yeah. So I think we left off um, talking about um, the platform for making it passive. Mm -hmm. Yes. How's the how's the the platform passive? So I guess what you were, you were saying is for the owners. Yep. Of the trucks is passive, but for the drivers, it's not passive. I think is what you were yes, getting. Yes, exactly. So the person that own a truck, they get the passive income, right? So they don't really have to worry um, run operation themselves. But for the driver, so here's here's the challenge, right? There's about four million drivers in the U.S. today, right? And ten percent mm -hmm. of those drivers, they have their own truck, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning they have greater control of their schedule, they have greater control of their um, earning. So they pretty much have a better way of living as a truck driver, right? Because yeah. again they're on their own truck. The other 90% of drivers, those are drivers that work for trucking companies. They get told where to go, right? They don't care if your anniversary is tomorrow. Hey, we need you on the road for the next 30, 40 days. That, those drivers really have zero control of their schedule, zero control of their earning. And also, 90% of those drivers, they have poor credit. And 90% of truckers, they paycheck to paycheck. So it's very hard for them to go out there and purchase a truck to become owner-operators so they can have better freedom and better flexibility. So that leaves them stuck working at companies, you know, with kind of dead-end jobs. But what we saw was there was regular individuals that don't have a CDL, that just saw trucking as a viable option, that has better credit score and that has better financial terms or, you know, financial, they're more financially stable to go out there and purchase a truck themselves. So when they purchase that truck and they put that truck into the platform, the driver sees it as inventory. So a driver seeing that truck as inventory in the sense is we giving that driver the tools to operate like an owner operator without actually going out there to purchase a truck and having to have put 20, 30K down payment to buy the truck because now there's a platform that give him access to all available trucks. He can book it, do his job, make pay and go home. So he gets to work and have create, um, control of his schedule just like the owner operator without actually the headache of owning the truck, worrying about maintenance, worrying about you know pretty much running the entire logistics company. So I think that's where people are really seeing the values for the drivers and I think for the truck investors is a lot of value because we are, Pretty much the truck get better utilization under our platform then they'll be able to kind of do it on their own because otherwise the truck will just be sitting down so for us it's leveraging the technology today to pair those drivers with those underused um underutilized assets to kind of create a better ecosystem in trucking man the marketplace that's brilliant I, we even uh spoke about this like a couple pods ago we say like the great businesses of today are in the business of buying back your time right uber is buying back your time like you don't got to think about a taxi you just get in there you're essentially doing the same thing and it's so it's actually revolutionary for the whole industry that the biggest pain is actually and it's a truck it's not a car it's a truck like this is such a headache man so i think your 
with this pivot you've made, you're on, you're definitely on the right track. Like, I, I just don't see you losing with this model. Nah, definitely. Yeah. To me, they, they can't lose at all, man. If you think about it again, it's like, you know, what the drivers are saying is the industry does not provide no upward mobility, right? Mm-hmm. They start as a driver and die as a driver. And we don't understand or we don't want to understand why drivers are leaving trucking for gig economy platform like Uber or Lyft, right? Because just like you mentioned, those companies allow a driver to buy his time back. If I'm driving Lyft, I know. I said maybe I, I only probably want to drive five, six hours today, right? And not only that, I get to sleep in my bed every night being an Uber and Lyft driver. Trucking does not provide that. So that's what also creates the million truck driver shortage that we have today because truckers are leaving trucking to go drive Lyft and Uber because it provides a little bit more flexibility to that driver. Now, if we can now create this ecosystem where drivers can only work, I mean, not can only work, but if drivers say, I only want to work four days, they can come on fleet and, and work four days and book the truck. The other three days, if they want to do Lyft or Uber, they can also do that because now they have the ability to see their family more often, make more money, but they're not just stuck with a company that's telling them they have to be 30, 40 days on the road before they come home to their family. Facts, big facts. Um, one thing that was on my mind is a lot of people, like you said, like the retail investors, the regular everyday people want to get involved in trucking now, right? What's your advice for those people, those everyday entrepreneurs, they have good credit, you know, and they're like, all right, I see trucking. I saw Alex Good Energy. I see Ernie Leisure with the big truck, mm-hmm. you know? All right, I want to get into this now. What advice do you have for those people? Uh, man, that, that's a good question, right? Because I think for me is also, again, I'm not the type of person to just kind of sell somebody into a dream. Um, knowing definitely when, you know, it can be very challenging. So I would tell number one for people, man, first, make sure you're in a real um, financial position before you think about purchasing um, a truck. Because once again, yes, it may look very easy. Um, Once again, social media make you think that, you know, running a trucking company is very easy. And I'm here to tell everyone that's a lie. That's a myth. Running a logistic company is super hard. Like, you really have to understand unit economics. You really have to understand how to build relationships. You really have to understand to have empathy for your drivers. You have to have that level of emotional intelligence when it comes to, you know, running a trucking company. So it's not just, oh, I'm going to just go get a truck or take a course, and then I'm going to get into trucking. So what I want to tell people is it's very hard. But, however, it can be very lucrative if done the right way, right? If you have the right partner, the right mentorship, to really mm-hmm. shows you the ins and out, you know, where potential failures can be. If you have somebody that can really kind of walk you through that, yes, absolutely, you'll be golden. But I think a lot of people get into trucking and thinking that, okay, well, they'll get a truck today, they'll be rich tomorrow. Everybody is looking for that overnight success in trucking. And I'm here to tell everyone that doesn't exist. I've been in transportation myself for almost two decades. It didn't happen overnight, right? I got mm-hmm. my ass every step of the way. So it's like for people to really believe that, hey, look, if they take a course tomorrow, they'll be successful. I'm here to tell them, no, that's not true at all. That's far from the truth. Because there's a big difference between theory and practical. You can study all about you want, about trucking, how it work, the drivers, the freight, and the truck, you put it together and start making money. But when it gets to practical, when that rubber hit the road, it's a different monster, right? Mm-hmm. Now you have to really understand, what do you do when that truck breaks down? What happens if there's an accident? What happens if my driver's running out of hours? What happens if I, my drivers cannot make that delivery to the shipper? You know, all those things that really come into running a trucking company is really just not that easy. And also another thing I tell people is that the number one guarantee that you will have in this business is that your truck will break down. And you want to be financially secure to solve that problem when it happens because if the wheels is not turning, you're not earning. So if your truck, remember, if your truck break down, 
a truck dealership is not the same thing as a car, right? A car, you can take your car to the dealer, they say, yeah, come back tomorrow, your car will be done. Trucking, yeah. now we're talking about days, right? They could say, hey, man, by the looks of it, we don't think we're going to get to your truck until 10 days from now, right? That 10 day, guess what? Your truck is sitting down. And at the end of the month, the insurance company don't care. You can call them and say, well, my truck only ran 12 days for this month. Can I only pay insurance for 12, uh, 12 days? Nope. You got to pay for the whole fee. <laughs> you can't call a bank and say, hey, man, my truck didn't run the whole month. My truck only run 12 days. Can I get a slack on my payments? No, they don't care. Rain, hell, sleet, snow, the insurance want their money and the truck financing want their money. So I think it's very important people really mm -hmm. understand the challenges in trucking. How do you really build a good um, a good company culture around their company? How to really hire drivers, how to really retain drivers? But for us, it's exactly why we're creating this because we saw that people seen this as a viable opportunity to invest. But the problem is the challenge is that they really don't know how to run a trucking company. You have drivers that have been in trucking for years, still don't know how to run a logistic company. So you think by just taking the course yourself, you're going to figure it out that overnight. So it's not that easy. So I just want people to understand. Yes, it can be lucrative. Make sure you have a mentor. Make sure you have a partner that really understand the space that failed before. Not just being success, because again, in order to be successful in trucking, that means you got your ass kicked before, right? And you mm -hmm. went through the pain point. So I think it's very important people kind of associate themselves with the people that's number one, that's actually doing it, that's actually solving a problem, to kind of become part and be more educated and not just go ahead and make a blind investment because somebody said it sound good. Because to you or somebody said, you saw somebody post on Instagram how much money that they made in that truck. And a lot of time, we are buying other people's lifestyle. We're not making mm -hmm. those conscious decisions to say, okay, well, is this a good investment for me? And if this don't work, how does this affect my future? How does this affect now? So I think it's very important when people look at trucks don't buy anyone lifestyle and say, let me go get in the truck as well because it sounds cool, because that's the new thing on the block. Make sure you're passionate about it. Make sure you really want to change something. Make sure that you want to bring something different because there's a million competition in trucking and you are no different than those other million carriers, right? So I think it's very important we understand that and people just need to really understand the pain point and have that emotional intelligence and understand what works for the drivers, what don't work for the drivers, what work for the shippers, what don't work for them, and how do you create a better ecosystem that allow everyone to win. As long as you have a mentor that can really teach you those things, yes, absolutely. Trucking can be very lucrative and it can definitely change your life. It can change your entire trajectory. Uh, uh, big gems. You have a in major investor. You know, he's got crazy handles. You know, he's nice with it. He, can, <laughs> he has a lay a package that can just like you know no one can stop Kyrie irving how yes. did he get involved with fleeting man that's uh uh that journey right there was really something that was really really amazing so um i know this investor by the name of marcus glover uh mm -hmm. that i've met a couple years ago but marcus didn't invest in fleeting at early on but we kind of really kept the relationship so you must like became a mentor to me and you know always and it wasn't just, again, a mentor just around business, but like, you know, for personal uh, mental health, really, I really leaned on Marcus a lot. And recently, again, after the George Floyd um, situation, Marcus was approached by Lockstep Ventures to actually build a fund together to help minority founders, you know, to help more in the space. And as soon as they decided, I was the first person Marcus reached out to to say, Pierre, hey, look, we're getting ready to launch this fund. And definitely, you know, you've been, you know, top of the mind, we've been thinking about you and we want to invest in fleeting. We really love what you guys are doing, you know, changing the dynamic. And then he said, not only that, I have somebody that's really interested in investing that been reaching out to us and trying to get access to you. I said, well, who is that? Well, come to find out that was Kyrie Irving. He said, well, Kyrie Irving also has families in the supply chain logistics as well. So he kind of understand that problem 
from a different level himself. So he's like, look, man, how can we support Freedom? Because they're really doing something amazing here. It's not just, again, changing the problem for trucking, but their approach about going back to marginalized communities and helping young men and young women get a CDL, helping formerly incarcerated men and women to get their CDL and become entrepreneurs in trucking. That really resonated with Kyrie Irving, and he felt like he wanted, he needed to be part of that mission, right, instead of just kind of being on the sidelines. And he's like, look, man, I'm in. You definitely want to support the mission. He, he understand what we were doing. And, you know, you run and roll the sleeve and, and get into it. So I think Lockstep and Kyrie Irving got together and made the deal happen. And it was one that, to be honest with you, um, Kyrie Irving and the Lockstep family, so many resources, so many access to network that I have with those guys, man. To be honest with you, sometimes it felt like I don't even have to go outside of that network for anything. Um, Lockstep alone give us a million dollars of free share services, right? And that means we have access for anything, whether it's HR, whether it's um, uh, tech, whether it's marketing, whether it's building our new website, everything that we need, we have access to it directly from their funds. So I think that was a great opportunity to work with Kyrie Irving and Lockstep Ventures. How how involved is he like day to day? Is he like hands on? Is he taking calls with you? Like what kind of investor is he? So yeah, definitely very hands on. Right, they want to understand exactly what challenges are we having. Um, how is it that they can help? How they can help elevate those challenges? So as a matter of fact, I'm having a call with him tomorrow. Right, and another challenge that we run into the business today is that you know there's a shortage of trailers, right, mm -hmm. for those trucks because simply because of COVID, um, trailer manufacturing companies wasn't able to really kind of manufacture that many trailers last year, so that created a shortage. So even for us, it's hard to find trailers. So we're working out on a, a debt financing plan right now to see if they can purchase the trailers and kind of lease them back to the company. So it's very hands-on and understand the challenges that we're having and how they can, you know, support and help grow the company. No, that's huge. That's huge. With all these different investors, um, you know, Arlen, um, Kyrie, and I know, um, I think Chameleonaire invested a while back too. You know, there's a lot of people starting to, to get on, right? And there's a lot of people that eventually, these are all loans, right? That you have to eventually pay back in some sort of way. Do you ever feel pressure to, you know, um, deliver more than regular? Like, how, and if and if so, how do you usually deal with it? Oh man, that pressure is real, man. For a startup founder, it, that pressure is real. But another thing to say too is that you know, with, with what our investment is that we it's not that we have to worry about payback because everything we took from investors, we don't have no convertible note. Everything was done on a safe note. So safe, mm, or, you know, big yeah, jam. So simple, big simple jam. agreement uh, for future equity. So meaning that, God forbid, knock on wood, if everything's you know fail, we pretty much not in a sense in a debt to pay our investors back because they were invested on a safe, not a convertible. But however, um, the pressure is still here, right? The pressure is like I think the minute you take money from somebody, it's mm -hmm. on. And it's on in a sense where even though that investor could be comfortable, even though that investor could be very understanding, at the end of the day, the investors want to return on their money, right? So they want you to figure it out. They want you to continue to grow. They want you to bring them a return. But the pressure for me as a founder is absolutely, that's something that I deal with every day. Um, anybody on my team will tell you there's nobody harder to on peer than peer. And I'm very hard on myself, and I've realized that I've caused a lot of unnecessary pressure sometimes because, you know, oh, how my investors may think about this. Or, hey, do they feel like I'm not growing fast enough? Do they feel like I'm not doing certain things enough? But then again, you as the founder, you have to be able to kind of regain that control back. You really have to look at, okay, well, what have I done from day one? Investors give me money. What did I do with the money, right? What did I build? So I think for me, every time I look back on what we were able to do, to, you know, to like I said right now, we're pushing to almost, you know, 
over three hundred thousand dollars a month in revenue. So anybody say, yeah, I took two point seven million dollars from investors, but I turned that into a three hundred thousand dollars a month type of business. So I think every time I look at it that way, I don't. It kind of helped me remove the pressure of feeling like, oh man, maybe I should be, you know, raising a twenty million dollars Series A right now. But then I look back and I say, wait, hold up, we're only two years old. Why am I putting this much pressure on myself? But I yeah. think that's something that we do, or especially black founders, because again, remember, we do not have that network of saying, hey, look, we got that rich uncle, we got that rich dad, or you know, we got the rich network that we can just go into and get more capital if something don't work out. So for us as black founders, it's like, you know, that pressure coming from like, okay, I have to execute. Like there is like failure is not an option. Like I have to win. It's like other founders may have the ability to say, okay, yeah, well, I fail. I'm gonna build another business and still raise capital. But to black founders, it's like, you know, once you get that capital in, you gotta hit a home run. Because number one, so many people counting on you, right? Yeah. Your investors are counting on you. Your families are counting on you. Your peers are counting on you. And also the people that in the industry that you're solving for are counting on you. So those pressures do exist. But the best way I help kind of with those pressures is kind of look back and look what I've achieved. Look where I came from. Um, pretty much my entire background, just kind of look at it in a sense. So now I look at everything from a gratitude standpoint as opposed to looking at it as pressure to hurry up and move and keep moving. Because at the end of the day, you control the narrative. The pen is in my hand. Mm -hmm. Not the investors, nobody else. Again, they're here for support. They're here to help us continue to grow, but they're not here to really judge and say, hey, look, man, you're not growing fast enough because if they understand, clearly understood the problem, the what it is that we're building, every investor will tell you Rome wasn't built overnight. So take your time, learn as much as you can. Don't deal with the unnecessary pressure. Just keep doing the right thing. Just keep growing. Just keep focusing on the problem that you, you set out to solve. Everything else is going to be extra. But as far as to, to say that it's going to get to a point where it's going to be no pressure, uh, I'll be the first one to tell you that's a lie. I think every founder operates some type of under pressure. But this is a lot of time. This is where, how you find who you are. This is where you really find your true self is through that pressure by people holding you accountable. So I welcome it. Um, instead of looking at it as something negative, I look at it much more as something positive and just kind of look at everything as part of evolution. It's like, okay, well, how do we grow from here? What is it that I need to learn from this stage right here to get to the next stage? So it's real, but I think it's just a matter of how you deal with challenges and pressure that can determine the ultimate outcome. Yeah, you're right on that pressure, man. It's like game winner, like games on the line. You have no option to miss. It's like you have that ball in your hands. It's like you're scoring triple team, like whole squad on you. Like you got to get that bucket. So now I feel you, Pierre, man. But you're like from what it looks like, you're handling that pressure well. You're growing, you're scaling, and uh, the sky's the limit for you. No, the sky's absolutely the limit, man. And I think for, for that is not just me. I think, you know, by having a good support system around really help. And I think that's something that founders really, really need to be very aware of, man. Stop trying to do it alone, man. Make sure you have a support system around you. Make sure you have people that you can be real and really tell the truth. Because again, a lot of times founders and those things that I had to learn myself as a founder, you know, you may not want to go to your investors about certain challenges that you're having because you're thinking that, hey, look, they, they're probably going to say, I don't care, figure it out. But I think a lot of times we put this unnecessary pressure on ourselves and you'll, you'll be surprised how willing your investors are to hear you out and really help support because guess what? They've been there before. They've invested in companies that have went through hell and became successful. And they've also seen companies that went through hell and failed. So I think it's very good to be very open and have that good relationship with your investors and let them know where there's pressure. Let them know what there's challenges. And I can guarantee you there's always some good gems that can give you that that make you feel a lot better about yourself in those challenges. Yeah. So just don't do it alone, man. Make sure we have that support system, you know, to share those challenges. Man, 
Beautifully said, beautifully said. And let's work towards wrapping up. Um, you know, for that black tech entrepreneur. Honestly, I feel like you just answered the question, but I just want to answer just to see if you have anything else. Um, for the for the black tech entrepreneur that's in this silo working away, that wants investors but doesn't have anybody, and he's a non-tech founder as well. Yeah, because that's very key. A lot of us out here that are non-tech. Um, what advice do you have for them? Yes, uh, so that right here resonate with me, right? Because I'm a, a non-tech founder myself. I don't know nothing about tech, right? My entire life been in supply chain logistics. Didn't know anything about the venture capital um, ecosystem. Didn't know anything about that, you know, until 2018. Like I said, I just got in this ring in 2018, and we launched in 2019. So what I would tell um, those founders is, number one, do not get caught up into politics and startup. A lot of times, I know we can hear about the, the, the unfairness that goes into startup, you know, with white VCs. The minute you really get caught up into those politics, you start feeling like a victim and things become a lot harder. So first and foremost, let's remove the victim mentality, right? You're not a victim because 100 investors say no. Listen, you're far from a victim. You just have to really keep pushing, keep refining yourself and keep being that best version of yourselves. Second, I would definitely say get out there. You know, so a lot of time, again, we don't do certain things because we're afraid of failure. We're afraid of being ridiculed. We're afraid of how people are going to look at us. We're afraid of making a fool of, um, out of ourselves. But if you really pay attention, that's where the learning is at. Go ahead, hurry up and make a fool out of yourself. Like they said, hurry up and fail. Hurry up and put yourself out there and learn and start building that relationship and start building that network. All it takes is one investor, right, to create a domino effect. Because with that one investor that say yes, or even that investor that say no, you can actually build a network of investors with just one investor intro. Because if he passed, the way you go about it and say, hey, look, I know you passed. Do you know any other investors in your network that may have an appetite for where we are as a stage? Nine out of 10, that investor probably going to make 10 more intros to early stage investors for you. There you go. You mm -hmm. still build a network that way. Same thing. If investors say yes, he's automatically going to share you know, what you have going on with other investors. So all it takes is that one investor. So a lot of times, us founders, we don't put ourselves out there, you understand, to get that right partnership. So without my advice to them, go to that pitch competition. You may not know how to answer those questions, but guess what? Keep applying yourself. That's how eventually you'll learn how to speak the investor's language. That's how you eventually build confidence. So put yourself out there. Go deal with the no's. Go ahead and let investors make a fool out of yourself because it's going to happen. They're going to laugh at you. But it's okay because, again, you have to start somewhere. Nobody woke up one day and just had this whole pitching thing figured out. Nobody woke up one day thinking, you know, hey, look, I'm just going to go out there with an idea and raise millions of dollars. It takes work. But in order for us to really see the result, we have to start doing it. So we have to start failing. The sooner we start failing, the better we can start seeing some results. So all those founders out there, man, I'm here to tell you that, look, venture capital is not easy. It's one of the hardest things that you can do, but what's hard is not doing nothing at all. What's hard is really sitting on one corner and keeping yourself to yourself, saying, hey, look, nobody's going to invest in me because of X, Y, and Z. Us black founders, we need to stop negotiating ourselves out of opportunities. Go ahead, put yourself out there, get through the fire, deal with the pain point. I guarantee you the outcome is going to be a lot greater than mm -hmm. you staying silo and staying in your own corner don't want to speak to anyone because you think, you know, they may not like your product because you think they may not want to invest in you for whatever that background is. Once again, look at me as a prime example. I have zero background in tech. My entire life been in transportation logistics. However, I believe 
in what I was building. I believe in our mission. I believe in those pain points. So I think it's very important founders believe in their mission, make sure they're very passionate about their mission, and make sure that you really have to be able to demonstrate to that investor, whether you give me money or not, I'm going to find a way to build this business. And I think that's what really kind of get a lot of good founders in a good position to start growing. That level of confidence is important. So you have to really step up in the room and own it, right? You're not looking for a charity check. At the end of the day, you have to also understand you're giving the investor an opportunity as well to make money. So the more we start looking ourselves as an investment or as a charity check, we'll stop worrying about what people have to say. Because now when I walk in a room, it's not just somebody just give me $100,000 or give me a million dollars. Well, guess what? They're still looking at it as there's a possibility that they can 10x that million dollars that they give me. So for the investors, I'm actually giving them an opportunity to invest in me and to invest in my product and my solution. So founders, you really need to look at yourself as their true leader. You really need to look at yourself as you are the only guy on this damn planet that's suitable to solve that problem. You have to have that level of confidence. And just don't let nobody get in the way. After that, pretty much, everything I would say is like to say that everything is going to be easy, but you start having that level of confidence. So when somebody tell you no, you actually, it goes from crying to celebrating. Because guess what? Every no you get is an opportunity again to pitch, to tell a better story, to make sure that you bring that round in. So... That's exactly what I would give to all the founders out there, man. Just keep your head down and keep pushing. And knock on, and instead of knocking on that damn door, man, kick that shit down. Stop being afraid. Mm-hmm. Bars. L- love it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> facts, facts, facts. <laughs> all right. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, hustle is what you can't control. So control your grind and control your life. I'm Alex. And I'm Owen. And I'm Pierre. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. sir. (laughs) And that's hustle over everything, y'all. Peace Peace out. Man, man, that was a great episode. It's so interesting doing this. (laughs) It's so so interesting doing this. Like, it's going back and forth. Back and forth. We have no breaks, of course. But yeah, now Pierre was dope. Um, having him on the podcast. Um, I think. Pierre brings this is a real level of honesty when it comes to entrepreneurship, and um, it's admirable. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's rare that you see a non-tech um, CEO in something like a trucking company yeah. or in the Airbnb off company. Mm-hmm. So it's really admirable to see what Pierre is doing, and I think he really built a significant business. Look at how far he's gotten. He's gotten Kyrie Irving to invest. Kyrie. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate you guys. It's been our 100th episode. We have one more piece of content for you from Pollyanna Reed. We just wanted to break it up so you have enough space to listen to each person individually. So make sure you check back for Pollyanna Reed dropping very, very, very soon. All right, y'all. Peace.